All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. You can open your Bibles there. Let me just pray real quick. Father, be with me now as I teach your word. Be with us now as we hear your word. Lead us into all truth by the power of your spirit and help us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of your word. We ask it together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. All right, so yesterday was the 50th anniversary of what? Apollo 11, first manned mission to the moon. And a little known story about that mission was that as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, took that lunar module and landed there on the moon, Buzz Aldrin took with him, he served as an elder of his church there in Houston, and he took with him in his personal kit the, the elements of communion. He took bread and he took uh, a little chalice of wine little uh, vial with a little chalice, and in the moon's gravity, one-sixth of the gravity here on earth, he's able there to pour that wine into that chalice, and there to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. His, his thinking, his mindset was that what was happening in this space program was so much bigger than a nation. It was so much bigger than the, all the politics of the time and all of the space race and all of the, the things that were riding on this. It was bigger than that. And he wanted to glorify the Lord God uh, and, and to be there on the moon. Now you think about it, the very first uh, food and drink served on the moon, partaken of on the moon, was the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Worshiping, glorifying the Lord. Did a great write-up on it in the 70s, uh, Buzz Aldrin did, and he talked about how, you know, pouring the wine into the chalice and how it, it you know, would there in that one-sixth gravity just kind of splay up the side of the cup and all. And you think about it, this is the culmination, the, the space race, the culmination of a decade of planning. And uh, Buzz Aldrin partaking of communion, glorifying the Lord there, um, the first food and the drink just being to, to celebrate God's goodness and, and, and all, and just such an amazing thing. Well, chapter 2 here in Luke's gospel, it marks the culmination of Jesus' ministry here on earth. That everything that Jesus had done for three and a half years as his ministry serving there on the earth for his entire life here, uh, God incarnate in, in man, all coming to its head right here, now at this point in time in Luke's gospel. And just the culminary, everything in Jesus' life and ministry, his birth, his teachings, uh, the miracles he performed, all for this moment in time where he would give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is going to mark this event, partaking of communion. He's going to celebrate the Passover supper. And he's going to change very significantly the elements of it. But what is happening here as everything comes to this bullseye now, it is all to celebrate this moment in time where Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So it all begins here with the Feast of Passover. Luke chapter 22, picking up in verse 1, says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. So you've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's called Passover. Passover commemorates the event that triggered the Israelites' delivery from Egypt. 
when uh, the, the angel of death is coming to take the firstborn son and God says you slay a, un, you know, an unblemished, spotless lamb, put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over. And so Passover commemorates uh, that particular event. The Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the subsequent rapid escape of the Israelites uh, from Egypt. After uh, this plague comes upon uh, the, the whole people there of Egypt, and Pharaoh finally says, fine, you can go. And so rapidly they left. And so the, the Israelites from that point on were, were commanded to partake of this. And Passover celebrated over one day, over a meal to remember the covering of the blood of the lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day celebration. It began with cleansing the house of all leaven. Leaven is that uh, yeast, basically, which causes the bread to rise. And, uh, and here's why they would uh, celebrate this. When Pharaoh freed the Israelites, they fled in such a hurry that they couldn't wait for the bread dough to rise. Um, and um, so in commemoration of this during the feast of unleavened bread, there's no leaven in the bread. And they would go through a big production uh, where they would have the, you know, go through their houses diligently, fastidiously, just to clear out all traces of leaven in the house. And then they would leave one little morsel of it for the kids to go in. And the, the, it was, became, you know, an event that the kids would look forward to in anticipation. We get to go search the house and find the hidden leaven and, and remove it. Now, Together, these eight days, the seven days of unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the one night of the Passover meal, together they came to be called collectively Passover. All Jewish males over the age of 12 were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. This was not something that you could celebrate independently, privately in your home. This was something to be celebrated collectively uh, in community uh, together. And uh, this was part of the Old Testament covenant that was established in Exodus, their, their need to go and celebrate this Passover. We'll get into that covenant uh, more in a minute. That's very significant. And so together, this celebration looked back on God's faithfulness to deliver his people from bondage, but Passover serves as a bigger purpose, and it has always served as a bigger purpose. The point of Passover is to point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's always been the purpose of this Passover because Jesus is our Passover lamb. It is his blood that, that covers our sin. And of course, Jesus is the one who removes the leaven from us. Leaven is this picture of sin. And Jesus is the one who takes away our sins. Uh, you know, I always get into this. When we think about leaven, you think about yeast, the, the action in which it works. It hits the bread, permeates the bread, and what leaven causes dough uh, to, to do is, in fact, to rot. It's a perfect picture of sin. It causes the dough to rot, and as the dough rots, gas is released, and this is part of that, that rotting process of the dough, and as the gas is released, it forms these little bubbles within the dough, and that causes the dough to rise. And of course, you know, you, you, you bake the dough into to a loaf of bread, and you cut into it, and you toast that bread, and in those little nooks and crannies, those are all the gas bubbles of rotting dough, by the way. 
but it tastes so sweet, doesn't it? And you butter it up and you just, oh, this is magnificent, right? Such a good picture of sin because sin is pleasurable for a season, but the season is always too short and the, the price is always too high, right? And so you've got Jesus, our Passover lamb, Jesus, the one who removes the leaven from us, takes away our sins. And this was John the Baptist's um, uh, proclamation. His fir first time John the Baptist saw Jesus, first thing he said, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. But there's a problem. Jesus here, he's going to celebrate the, the Passover. It's drawing near, but there's a problem. Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people. Here's the idea. The religious leaders of this day, they're looking to kill Jesus because he's bad for business, right? But it isn't easy because Jesus is hugely popular. And so what these guys are trying to do, these slick, slimy politicians, they're trying to figure out a way that they can kill Jesus but not have their fingerprints on it so that the people aren't angry with them. So they're working to on an opportunity. They want to set Jesus up. They want to pin something on him. So what do they do? Well, they get Fusion GPS to hire Roger Stone and put together a dossier so that they... Oh, sorry, different story. Um, no, what do they do? They look to see what they can do to, to find something on, on Jesus, to pin something on him. By the way, it's ironic that it should happen during the Passover season. Because here you've got these guys, supposedly the religious leaders, their Messiah has come, they're plotting to kill their Messiah, God incarnate, right? And at the same time, what are they doing? They're making this big show of cleaning their houses of leaven and having their kids go and, and all of this stuff. We got we to clean out our, our house, not having any sort of leaven in our house. Meanwhile, they're looking to kill Jesus. I like what Warren Wearsby said in his commentary. He said, the religious leaders had cleansed their homes, but not their hearts. And we could just hit the pause button right there and say, could that be said of us? Have we cleansed our homes, but really not our hearts? We can cook on that as we continue. Last week, you'll recall, we read from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22. Jesus told a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and he told a parable about a wedding feast. And in that parable, what he was doing, he was describing Israel's history, how they rejected and persecuted the prophets that God had sent to them. And Jesus gave this parable to these same religious leaders who are now looking to persecute him, looking to kill him. And prior to Luke 22, about a week before, chronologically, this setting right now, Jesus, as he was on his way up to Jerusalem, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that he took his disciples aside and he warned them that just as these religious leaders had persecuted the prophets, that they were going to do the same to him. Here's what Jesus said. He said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him, but after three days, he will rise again. Now, I want you to notice several key details. Let's just leave that scripture up there. Notice several key details in, in that scripture 
that, that, are, that are important for us. We're going to see things that Jesus knew. He knew it ahead of time. And we're going to look at these things that Jesus knew, and from that we're going to extrapolate something that we know because of what Jesus knew. All right? The first thing Jesus knew was that he would be rejected by the religious leaders. Secondly, Jesus knew that he would be beaten, that he would be tortured, and that he would be killed. And thirdly, Jesus knew that he would rise again. As a matter of fact, this was the entire point, right? This is his whole ministry building up to this, the wedding feast at Cana, the first miracle that Jesus performs, turning water into wine, and, and it's his mom's like, hey, go get Jesus, he'll take care of it kind of thing, and Jesus' response is, my hour has not yet come. What was he, what was he talking? Well, it wasn't, it, he wasn't saying he wasn't going to do it. He did the miracle, but what he was emphasizing was, look, I, I didn't come to do miracles. Yes, that'll be a part of the process, but that's not my purpose, my purpose is for the hour which I've come. This is the, the hour that he's come for to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus knew that he'd be rejected. He knew that he'd be beaten. And he knew that he would rise again. And here is what we can know and should know because of all these things that Jesus knew. What we know is Romans 8.28, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose for them. Do you know that this morning? That all things in your life work together for good. That doesn't mean that all things are good. It means that God works all things together for our good. See, the events that are leading up to the crucifixion, they are all part of God's plan. And our application here that we can take, our takeaway, we can take a walk with today. Maybe for some of you today, you need to hear this. That whatever it is that you are facing today, God knows. God knows. It might have hit you like a ton of bricks. It might have been something that you were not expecting, not planning for. It might be something that completely came out of left field and has shaken you to your very core. And I just want to remind you again today, just as Jesus knew all of these things, they were part of his plan. He knew it. He had foreordained it. Nothing takes him by surprise. And because of that, you can know today for certainty that God works all things together for the good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So you might be going through something today you never would have chosen, you never would have picked, doesn't seem how it would fit in your plan, totally is, is earth-shaking for you, and yet, you know what? God's at work. He's at work. Nothing happens to you that doesn't cross his death. Nothing happens to you that, hey, listen, he says in, in his word that the hairs of your head are numbered. That your days are numbered. God prepares beforehand the, the works that we would, would do, what we would walk in, so that we might bring Him glory and honor, so that He might be, be the Lord and Savior, not only of our life, but of, of all of these intricate, interwoven lives on this earth. God has a plan, He has a purpose, and He is going to accomplish His plan and His purpose. And so Jesus knew that he'd be rejected. He knew he'd be beaten. He knew he would rise again. Something else Jesus know, knew ahead of time, he knew that he would be betrayed. We see this in Mark's gospel in Mark 10, 33, about a week again prior to Luke 22. Um, Jesus told his disciples also on the way up to Jerusalem that he was going to be betrayed. 
We see it in John's gospel when he said, I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. He was speaking, the text is clear to tell us, of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later betray him. Jesus knew ahead of time who he had chosen. This man, Judas, was going to uh, betray him. And now here in our text, it happens just as Jesus said it would. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. And so he went his way and he conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them, and they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And so he promised, and he sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. I want you to take a look there in verse 3, that word entered. Satan entered Judas. Literally, that word entered, it means to go into, and what is in view here is satanic possession. This is not, oh, the devil made me do it and I was tempted kind of thing. Some people might say, oh, the devil made me do it. I doubt very seriously it's the devil who has been tempting you. But even if it's the devil himself, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You can be oppressed, you can be tempted, and, 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 and certainly... You know, when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him. There is a huge heavenly host. Our battle, the Bible says, isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark age, right? And so we go through temptations, but very few people can say that they were tempted by Satan himself. He's got, frankly, bigger fish to fry than you or me, right, in, in, in this world, living and operating. He doesn't have the power of God. He can't be everywhere all the time. And so when Satan is in, and he is in operation in this world, but, but chances are, you know, he's, he's working through world leaders and world rulers and so on and so forth. Very seriously doubt that it's Satan himself. However, not only is Judas attacked by Satan, because Peter would be told by Jesus, hey, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat, right? And, and so, but, but a big distinction between what happens with, with Peter and what happens with Judas because Judas here is possessed by Satan. Scary thing. That, that Satan literally goes into Judas and, and, uh, and, and possesses him. And one commentator put it this way. He said, Satan is a liar and a murderer and he reproduced himself perfectly in Judas. Why? He possessed Judas. And so this is Satan operating through Judas and at this point, let me make an important distinction. Judas was never saved. You might go, wow, he's one of Jesus' disciples. Is this a situation where, you know, Jesus called him and, you know, he was good and then he turned and went bad? No, Judas was never saved at all. He was never cleansed by Jesus. How can I say that so confidently? Because Jesus said it. Let me put it on the screen for you. John chapter 6, verse 63 through 64 Jesus said, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But, listen to what he says, some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe and he knew who would betray him. So Judas has never been saved. He's been a follower of Jesus, but he has not been a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And he is not subject to having, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life and having his sins cleansed 
by the work that Jesus will do. So that brings up a question for me. If Judas was never truly a believer in Jesus Christ, why on earth did he follow Jesus? Why on earth would he respond to the call and say, I want to be a disciple, right? A learner, a follower. Why would, why would Judas do that? Well, now we're getting into a situation where we have to judge the motive of the human heart. And, and none of us really can judge somebody's motives uh, totally. We don't really know. But we have some clues in, in the scripture that we can draw from and go, what is it that caused Judas to be a follower of Jesus if he never truly was, was you know, a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, one big possible motive in Judas's life is money. Money. Look again at verse 5. It says there that they were glad and they agreed to give him money. Now, that word agreed, it means to join together in agreement. And according to Matthew 26, Judas perpetuated this. He's the instigator. Put it on the screen for you. Then one of the 12, Matthew says, the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, so who's the initiator here? It's Judas. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, price of a slave, by the way. And they go, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. So Judas is the, is the instigator here, and what is he doing it for? Hey, what do you want me to sell this guy out for you? How much are you willing to give me? What's it worth to you? He's instigating it for money. And it's interesting, by the way, verse 5 uh, you know, as we read it, they were glad and they agreed to give him money. If you read it in the King James Version, it says they were glad and they covenanted to give him money. Really important word there. This word covenant is going to factor so, so, so primarily, so, so incredibly as we continue in on this story because Jesus, as he celebrates the Passover, he institutes a new covenant with us. And so on the one hand, you've got Jesus motivated by love, making a, a covenant, a new covenant, in his shed blood, giving his life, laying his life down for the joy that was set before him, the joy being our salvation, our being cleansed of our sins and being coming into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's beautiful, loving heart in the covenant that he would establish. But you've got Judas seeking to establish another covenant. He's motivated by the love of money, and he's making a covenant for money. Now, let me just simply say this. I mean, this is application rich, but we just take a walk with that and go, man, what is it that, that motivates me? Because there are those people that are guilty of a similar thing, that they betray Jesus regularly because of the love of money. They, they have covetous hearts, and, and so they cheat on their taxes, they, they cheat in business, whatever it is, and we, we can't just gloss over that. We really got to take a walk with this. The love of money. The Apostle Timothy, he was talking about this love of money, and he said that there are some people, they, they make a show of godliness, and it's just a way for them to become wealthy. I think about the prosperity gospel that is preached, and it works on both ends. You've got on the one end, you've got all those prosperity teachers who, who are motivated by a love of money. Hey, you've got to sow a seed. 
Send money to my ministry. God's not going to leave you hanging. He's going to bless you, and he's going he's to bless you a hundredfold. Now, the Bible talks regularly about God blessing us, about you know, the fact that he loves a cheerful giver, all of these things. But the Bible also says, basically, if your motivation is to get money, you're not giving your money to worship God. You're, you're giving it as an investment for you. And you should just keep your money if that's why you give. So, so the prosperity gospel is all about, man, uh, this show of godliness, it's just a way for, for the prosperity teacher to get rich. And for those that ascribe to the prosperity gospel, th- it's a motivation for me to get rich. Oh, you can't outgive God, I'm going to give God, you know, my 100 bucks so that I can get 1,000 bucks, you know, kind of thing. God doesn't work that way. Now, we see... This isn't the only example of Judas's heart where he loves money, where he covets money. There's an event that happens, and, and it happens just a few days before this, where they're at this dinner gathering, and Lazarus is there, and Mary is there, and Martha is there, and this beautiful thing happens. It's put it on the screen for you, John chapter 12. It says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Very important thing that's happening here is that Jesus has been talking about the fact that he's going to give his life as a ransom for many, that he's going to die. And his disciples aren't hearing it, but Mary hears it. And so what Mary does is she takes this expensive perfume, and we're going to see just in a little bit, it was worth about a year's wages. This, some speculate this was Mary's dowry that, that, you know, that she would, would save and have. And what does she do with this treasure that she has? She pours it out upon Jesus to worship Jesus. And we continue, and, and what happens, one of his disciples, verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. And here's how he objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth the year's wages. Judas is the one saying this. And verse 6 clarifies, it's the Holy Spirit telling us, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was the treasurer. And so you, you just... Just take a step back and just look at the facts of the case. Mary is worshiping her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And she's pouring out all she has. And all Judas can think about is that that was a year's wages. I, I could I have had access to that money. Such an, I mean, jaw dropped down. Like if this is the inclination of your heart, you better be very, very afraid right now. You know, it's like, wow. So, so one possible motive of Judas in why did he follow Jesus in the first place? Money, love of money. This is an opportunity for me. I can, I can prosper. With that in mind, here's another reason, and they're connected. Ambition is another incredible possible motive uh, for Judas. Because it's entirely possible that Judas had the expectation that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome. Many of the disciples did. This is why Peter pulled Jesus aside when he talked about going and being crucified, and he began to rebuke him. 
right on the heels of saying, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. But then as Jesus starts talking about how he's going to suffer and die, Peter's like, no, 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 that ain't going to happen. Why? Because his expectation was, you're the Messiah, you're going to conquer Rome, and we're all going to rule and reign with you. Judas clearly had the same thought. Jesus was widely popular, he was extremely dynamic, he was greatly loved by the people, and he had great power to perform miracles. And he's thinking, I'm hitching my wagon to this guy. Because in the end, what's going to happen is I'm going to have power, I'm going to have a paycheck, right? And I'm going to have this great influence, right? I'm going to have a good position, in, in, so what Judas is doing in following Jesus is he's just saying, this, Ju- this dude's an opportunity. He's a cash cow. Power, position, paycheck, that's all about me. That's what I want to do. But now what happens is that he starts to get the memo. Jesus hasn't been secret about it. Look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. And so now, Jesus, now Judas is going, whoa, wait a minute. I hitched my wagon to you, and you aren't going to conquer and be the conquering king. So what's that say about my power, my position, and my paycheck? So now he says, I have to figure out a way to redeem this somehow. What can, well, I've, I've invested three and a half years in this guy. What can I do to cash out? I know, I'll sell him out. This is the attitude. This is the idea. Listen, let me just say this. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end, Okay. And, and for us, the application is we have to check our spiritual pulse and go, why is it that I follow the Lord in the first place? Why is it that I want to serve Jesus? Why have I come to Jesus? And we, we really, we have to hold out and say, God, what is my motive? Is my motive to glorify you? Is my motive because I know I'm a sinner by nature and by choice and I need a Savior and I'm desperate? Is that my motive? Or is my motive what I get out of Christianity? That Jesus, hey, you're a welcome addition to my kingdom. I could use a handy guy like you to have around. Hey, you're like the genie, and I'm going to get my three wishes, and you're going to make me rich, and you're going to make me powerful, and you're going to... we got to take a walk with that. We continue, verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And so they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. He would have stood out because women normally carried the water. And so here, when you see a guy carrying water, that's your clue. Follow that guy into the house he enters. Verse 11, Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. Now, there's some debate here, like whether Jesus went out privately and made some sort of arrangement with this guy, or whether this was just a moving work of God through the Holy Spirit, and God had maybe gone beforehand and spoken to this guy, giving him a vision or a dream or some other way of, hey, you should be in expectation to get your room ready because I'm going to be sending to you uh, someone to use that room and you have to be available. And we can't say definitively which it is, but here's what we can say, verse 13. It says, they went and they found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Here's the thing. Just as Jesus said, that's the idea. We just got to, we just, hey, whatever the Lord says, just do it. You're going to find it just as Jesus said. Now when, verse 14, the hour had come, he sat down. 
and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God Comes. Now, let me explain the traditional Passover meal. Jesus here is taking the traditional Passover meal. That's what's in view. He's partaking of Passover with his disciples. Now, Jesus is going to take the elements of Passover and he's going to make some strategic changes, okay? And we're going to look at that, but let's look at the traditional Passover meal because this follows along in the, the process in many ways, of the traditional Passover meal with some key changes. So in the traditional Passover meal, the wine was served four times, symbolizing the four-part promise of redemption in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So, so here in Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So this is speaking about the exodus from Egypt and what God is going to do, and God is talking to Moses about he's going to, how he's going to deliver the people from Pharaoh. Fast forward to verse 6. It says, Jesus or the, the Lord says to Moses, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out. That's the first promise. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, secondly, I will rescue you from their bondage. That's his second promise. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arms and with great judgments. That's the third promise. And fourthly, he says, then, uh, he says um, I will take you uh, as my people and I will be your God. Uh, that's the fourth promise. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the Passover meal was kind of centered around this and every the glasses of wine that they would partake of were supposed to commemorate all of these uh, different things. So let's see how that played out in the Passover meal. It began with the blessing of the meal and then you would have the first cup of wine that was served. This commemorated God's promise in Exodus 6.6 to bring the people out of Egypt. And next what would happen is the food would be brought out. And at this point, the youngest son would ask, why is this night distinguished from other nights? And then right on cue, the father would answer, and he would answer with the story of Exodus, going through all of the things that took place. And as the father would tell this story of Exodus, he would then point out certain items that were on the table that were a part of the Passover meal that were serving as symbolism, symbolic items, to emphasize certain points of the Exodus story. As an example, there would be bitter herbs on the table, and that would symbolize the bitterness of slavery. There would be salt water on the Passover table as part of the Passover meal. That would symbolize the tears that the forefathers shed in Egypt. There would be bread that was broken at the Passover table, and that was <clears throat> to symbolize the bread of affliction that the fathers ate in Egypt. And then there was the lamb that was served, which symbolizes the atoning sacrifice and the doorpost of the, the blood that we put on the doorpost of the house. Now, so this is what they would do. Then they would sing from the Hallel Psalms, 
uh, faith uh, read a portion of the Hallel Psalms today as we started off. So they would sing from the Hallel Psalms, and then they would serve a second cup of wine. And the second cup of wine commemorated God's promise in Exodus 6.6 to rescue them from their bondage. This seems to be here in Luke 22 where Luke picks up the story with the serving of the second cup of wine. See it there um, in verse 17 and 18. He took the cup, he gave thanks, and now uh, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Luke picks up the story, it would seem, with the serving of the second cup of wine. And then the bread would be blessed and broken, right? Which we read about in, um, after the serving of the second cup of wine in verse 19, the bread would be, would be blessed, it would be broken, it would be served with bitter herbs, and, uh, <clears throat> and then this would be followed by the serving of the meal, the Passover lamb. And the meal ended with the third cup of wine, and the third cup of wine commemorated God's promise in Exodus 6-6 to redeem his people. And so we see in verse 20 here, Jesus Uh, sharing this third cup with his disciples. It says, verse 20, Likewise, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So Jesus changes it. We'll get back to that in a minute. But this is where the third cup in the traditional Passover meal would be served. And then finally, the fourth cup of wine would be served, and this would commemorate God's promise in Exodus 6-7 to take Israel as uh, his people. By the way, let me just say this real quickly. I don't have time, but let me say it. Um, you go four cups of wine. Like, wow, that's a lot, you know? And we could get into a whole conversation about alcohol. We could debate it. Let me just say this. The Bible's very clear that drunkenness is sin. And this, this meal is spread out over several hours. And, uh, and we can just say categorically, they're not getting drunk here, okay? Um, because that would never be part of, of, of God's, you know, implemented service that you should be getting tanked up, you know. And, uh, and so the issue is, is drunkenness is a sin. So, so anyway, they're partaking of wine, and there's all kinds of debate about, the, oh, the wine, you know, had a lower alcohol content, the, the cups were small cups, all of this stuff. We can't say any of that conclusively. I'll just simply say this, they're not getting drunk, okay? This is a ceremonial thing, and <clears throat> they're partaking of this. The fourth cup of wine served, it commemorated God's promise. Now, let me say this. this is, I've just given you a bunch of information. You're like, I don't know if I caught up with all that. Let me just say, here's the important part. We see three cups figuratively here in Luke's gospel in the account we've just read. Jesus commemorates the promise to rescue and redeem them from bondage in the first cup in verse 17. He commemorates the promise to redeem them in verse 20. And then he looks forward in verse 16 to partaking of that final cup. The cup that he will take, uh, fulfilling his promise. He says uh, in verse 16, I will say to you, I'll no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled. What's he talking about? He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's talking about after he gives his life as a ransom for many, after he redeems the fallen, the lost, uh, including the lost, tri- the lost of Israel, after he redeems us, after he takes us to be with heaven, this is what's in view, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But, and this is where we close, this is really important. Jesus does something very important at this Passover meal. What's he do? He initiates a new covenant, okay? See, the old covenant that God established with Israel in the book of Exodus was all about God's righteous requirements as well as God's provision for sin through the blood sacrifices, sacrifices of a bull and of a ram to cover sins and all. 
And it was all intended to point to this new covenant, the covenant that Jesus establishes that's sealed not with the blood of sacrificed animals, but sealed with his own blood because he sacrificed his life for you and for me. The bread represents his body broken for us. The cup now represents Jesus' blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus takes the original Passover and he changes it for what it's always intended to be pointing to. And that's him, the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now, Jesus says in verse 19 of our text, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to think about it. He never emphasized remembrance of, of, of Christmas. Jesus never emphasized the remembrance of his miracles. Jesus never emphasized, hey, remember my ministry. What did he say? He said, remember my death. Why? Because by Jesus' death, we have life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is where I close, the Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That word examine, I'll put it on the screen for you. It means to test. It means to examine. It means to prove. It means to scrutinize to see whether a thing is genuine or not. And so we're going to partake of communion together today as we always do every Sunday. And what we need to do is, as we're readying our hearts to partake of this communion, we need to test, examine, prove, and scrutinize to see whether my faith is genuine or not. See, because Judas partook of, the, of this communion at the Passover, but his faith, it wasn't genuine. And so we need to do that. We're going to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves, or we're going to eat and drink the very elements of what it is that we believe and are holding to. And that is that God loves me, and because he loves me, he's made a way that I can have a right standing with him, that my sins can be forgiven and cleansed through the work that Jesus did on the cross. Three questions as we close. I'd ask you to write these questions down, take a walk with them this week, maybe discuss them in your community groups. Number one, have you cleansed your home but not your heart? Second question, is the love of money or ambition tempting you to betray Jesus? Third question, are you living an examined life?